Thank you all very much for coming, and thank you especially to our very distinguished speaker, uh, Imran Khan. And um, it's my job not to say very much at the beginning, but just to introduce the ground rules. Um, we want to have um, a lively and question and answer session. So if you're going to ask a question, could I ask you to be thinking now how to make it as short as possible so that every, as many people as possible get a chance to uh, ask a question. There will also be book signing uh, afterwards. And again, if you could avoid the temptation to have pictures taken, a long discussion of Pakistan politics, <laughs> at the time you try to ask Imran to sign the book, that would also enable as many possible books to be signed, and the more chance we get, the better. I'd also like to thank at the beginning the, those from the Asia Research Centre, uh, particularly Ruth Katamuri and Keith Tritton and their colleagues uh, who organised all this, um, and to thank you all again for coming. But of course, most important is to uh, thank Imran himself for coming. Um, I am considerably older than he is, so I had the pleasure as a, a teacher at Oxford of admiring already the young cricketer and followed uh, right through the 20 or 21 years of the career. And all of us who saw that are enormously grateful for the enrichment that he gave us all. But of course, um, after the cricketing career was the political career and the charitable career. And all of us who worked in Pakistan, as I have in the 80s and 90s and uh, a few years of the last decade, will surely uh, be grateful to Imran for his stand on changing the nature of Pakistani politics. Uh, anyone who's even got the most superficial understanding of Afghanistan's history will surely be grateful to him for his questioning of whether the outside forces in Afghanistan really have much idea of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And of course, his charitable work is something which we can only uh, admire and respect. So I won't say any more by way of introduction. You know who he is. That's why you came here. Uh, we are looking forward very much to listening to what he has to say about his new book and, and other things, and uh, look forward to the questions and answers. I will begin the kickoff. I'll, I'll ask um, Dr. Atta Hussain, uh, who is the director of the Asia Research Center, to ask the first questions. But he, like everybody else, will be very brief on that. So thank you all again for coming. Thank you particularly, Imran, for honoring us with your presence here today. And we look forward very much to listening to you and to the opportunity to ask some questions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor Stern. Um, first of all, why did I write this book? I'm no historian. Uh, I'm certainly no scholar on Islam. Uh, but I felt that at the time, at this time, there is so much confusion within Pakistan. And since 9-11, there is so much confusion outside Pakistan uh, about our country, about Islam, about the way this whole war on terrorism is being fought, and how somehow it has got linked, terrorism has got linked to Islam. So um, having living between or having spent so much time uh, in Britain and understanding the uh, Western society. And then, of course, being a politician in Pakistan who started a party from nothing and going all over Pakistan, building a party. So seeing the reaction, especially after 9-11, the reaction in Pakistan and, and the reaction uh, towards Pakistan, Islam and Pakistan outside, I thought uh, the best way was to write a book. 
write a book about Pakistan as as a Pakistani who was the first generation Pakistani who grew up in an independent country. My parents grew up in a colonial India. I was the first generation which saw, which, which saw an independent country. And we had such pride in our country when we were growing up. So from where Pakistan started to where it's got to now, we had our greatest uh, leader, sadly, um, dying a year after Pakistan was created. Uh, and how we've come to the situation where the biggest crook has become our president. And so I trace this sort of uh, roller coaster, which has, uh, you know, from my eyes, uh, how I saw how we sort of went up, and then there was this wonderful period where there was so much hope. And then things started going wrong from 1971 onwards, when Pakistan was split. Uh, but it also talks, uh, what I talk about is about Islam. What is Islam? Because there's so much confusion within Pakistan and the westernized Pakistanis or the English who go to English medium schools, what, how they perceive Islam, what a common man perceives Islam to be, and then how Islam is perceived from outside. Uh, wh what is secular? I mean, what does secularism mean in Pakistan? You know, what is a, a, a secular society for a Pakistani? Um, and then, um, you know, the war on terror, the impact uh, it had on our country, a country that had absolutely nothing to do with 9-11, there was no Al-Qaeda in Pakistan. It was at that time in Afghanistan. Uh, Al-Qaeda, as we know, was, was funded by the CIA and built both by Pakistan's ISI and CIA and was based in Afghanistan. Um, how suddenly we find that uh, Pakistan uh, becomes a frontline state in the war on terror. And then a country uh, where, uh, where we had no militant Taliban in Pakistan, uh, we, we didn't have Al-Qaeda. Uh, we had no, hardly any history of suicide bombings, four or five in our entire history. And suddenly, we reach a point today where 35,000 Pakistanis have died in this war on terror. Equal amount have been maimed because they are mostly bomb attacks. And the, and the injured normally sort of lose limbs. The, according to the Pakistan Economic Survey, the country has lost $70 billion. So that's what the economy has lost. The total aid coming in has been uh, 20 billion uh, since 9-11. And there are three and a half million internally displaced people in Pakistan. But the worst thing is, there's more radicalization in our country than ever before. The country is more polarized than ever before. We are not winning the war. We are, in fact, we have each year the number of uh, um, uh, attacks, bomb attacks go up. And um, uh, there's, a, there's a danger that, and the biggest danger is that the army, which is the only at the moment considered an institution that is intact, there's a danger that if this war goes on, something would happen within the army. There are worrying signs uh, that, especially there was this attack on the naval headquarter, where about six or seven people were supposed to have taken on 1,500 army personnel for 24 hours. Um, but that's what was reported. But clearly, it was an inside job. Then the headquarters, and before that, uh, in Rawalpindi, the army headquarters was attacked. Again, an inside job. Then the commando headquarters, where 50 commandos were blown up, again, an inside job. So uh, Musharraf was attacked twice, both times from within the army. So there's a, uh, there's a worry in Pakistan that, you know, if, if something happens from within the army, that is the nightmare scenario which we're all scared of. Um, and then there doesn't seem to be any solution, because all we are having is more of the same in Pakistan. Uh, recently, we, there was an attack on the American embassy in Afghanistan, uh, in Afghanistan, in Kabul. And immediately, Pakistan is now being asked to go into North Waziristan. Now, already, Pakistan can barely cope with the amount of terrorism. Going into North Waziristan means uh, for something like 5,000, or what we are told about 5,000 Haqqani Taliban group, which is supposed to be North Waziristan, for 5,000 fighters, we are going to go into an area where 350,000 people live. A and so to explain to people, what is the tribal area of Pakistan? 
I happen to be probably one of the only politicians in Pakistan who's been all over the tri tribal area. And I actually wrote a book about 20 years back uh, about uh, called the Warrior Race about about the history of the tribal area and, and what that place is. Why is it the most unique place in the world? Every man is armed. Every man is a natural warrior. This area has resisted every conqueror throughout history. And the, the, the basic social structure of that area, where every village is, is, a, is, a, is like the ancient Greek city-state, where it has its own parliament, it, its own uh, jury system. And so it's an auto people are totally uh, living in an autonomous uh, place where every village is independent. And so there's no central authority. They've never known any central authority. So the moment the Pakistani troops were sent there in 2004, what has happened was going to happen, because it's happened throughout history. And the, the most worrying thing was that the British went along with the Americans in Afghanistan. The British know the history of that area. They have left so much uh, literature on the Afghan, the three Afghan wars, and 80-year experience in the tribal areas. And so because they have not known any central power, whenever an, uh, an outsider was going to come, it, what the tribes were always going to get together and what, you, what we're seeing right now was going to happen. So what are the Taliban? That's the next question. Is this an ideological war? Or is it, are these just political Taliban? In other words, Taliban have come out because of a reaction to Pakistan's military operations in the tribal areas. And so my opinion is that unless... Uh, a proper diagnosis is done of what, who's your enemy. As the Chinese proverb says, know your enemy. Unless you know your enemy, this, is, this war is not going to end. And I, I did a couple of times, I brought people from the tribal area. Once a, wazir, a malik from Waziristan, I got him on the most popular program, Capital Talk, to sit and tell the people what was going on. And then I got from another agency, another uh, a tribal malik who came and sat down and, and just so that people in Pakistan understood what was going on. Because what is happening is uh, that from 2004 onwards, the more operations Pakistani army conducted in the tribal areas, coupled with the drone attacks, the more the collateral damage, the more militancy started growing because revenge is an integral part of their genes, their character. Uh, ever since time memorial, the whole tribal system depends on hospitality to, the, to any outsider and revenge if anyone in the family is killed. So here was Pakistan army bombing from uh, uh, helicopter gunships, F-16s, artillery from 20 kilometers away, and pretending, telling the people of Pakistan as if there was some army there. They were bombing villages, and villages had women and children. So it took two years of collateral damage to create what became the Pakistan Taliban. We did not have any militant Taliban, as I said, even when Taliban were in power in Afghanistan. So we created the Taliban through these military operations. And from day one, I was the one stood up in the assembly, opposed this. And so unfortunately, since 9-11, this, this uh, uh, narrative, either you're with us or against us, it just killed any debate. So if you, were not, if you did not go along with the military operations, you were pro-Taliban. And similarly, in the case now of polarization, Salman Tasira governor gets shot uh, because he's caught on the other side of the divide. That if you, are, if you say anything which is perceived to be anti-Islam, you're pro-American and, and, and sort of anti-Islam. So uh, this polarization has grown. The more military operations, the more collateral damage, the more uh, suicide attacks, um, and, and this year in Pakistan has been the bloodiest year. Uh, uh, also the same in Afghanistan. Remember, they're fighting the Pashtuns. So there are uh, one million armed men in Pakistan's tribal area. Just to make you understand the problem, there are a million armed men in Pakistan's tribal area. So my solution was that you win them over to your side and use them to isolate the real terrorists, the ideological Taliban, or Al-Qaeda, or what were the old jihadi groups, uh, which were lashkar e -Taiba. So rather than isolating them by winning the tribal people over to our side, which happened in the beginning, by the way, uh, the, the tribal people handed over 250 foreign fighters to Pakistan army initially. 
But when the operation started, gradually the whole Pakistan army was perceived as a mercenary army of the Americans. So they started fighting the Pakistan army, which then started attacking the villages, bombing. So eventually now we have 30 Taliban groups in Pakistan. Uh, and we have reached a stage where the, the army does an operation, comes back, and the Taliban or the fighters move away. The moment the army comes back uh, uh, to, to the cantonments, they come back in again. And so it's just a, a never-ending war. The solution lies, as I said, in winning the people over to your side. Solution, there is no military solution. There never can be a military solution there. Uh, when you have a hundred, uh, a million armed men, uh, it's the most senseless policy to push them towards, to push them towards uh, 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 the actual, the, uh, the, the terrorists which, who threatened the, the West, Al-Qaeda, or, or the terrorists which would operate from Pakistani soil. So it doesn't make sense to push these people on the, in the other direction rather than winning over to your side, which can only happen through a, through, um, a political solution. Uh, a, a, the same is in Afghanistan. The answer lies in actually winning over um, a, 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 on a, on a uh, timetable for withdrawal, getting the people, all the stakeholders across the table, getting the neighbors across the table, and working out a, a settlement where you can have a broad-based government. Apart from that, there is no other solution. And so as long as this keeps going, as long as there's war in Afghanistan, there is going to be destabilization within Pakistan. Pakistan will not be able to seal the two and a half thousand kilometer border, uh, which border uh, tribal area which borders Afghanistan. Uh, and, uh, and then finally, in the book, I talk about uh, giving direction to the youth of Pakistan. At the moment, there's a tremendous amount of confusion uh, amongst the youth. Where are we headed? We have. Uh, target killing in Karachi, where almost 6,000 people have died in the last, last two years. We have insurgency in Balochistan. All along the tribal belt, we have 140,000 soldiers uh, in our tribal areas. Uh, there's lawlessness. Uh, kidnappings, just to give you an idea, because of high unemployment and inflation, kidnappings in Punjab, which is considered the most uh, peaceful place right now, most lawful place in, in, the Pakistan, in Pakistan right now, uh, from 900 kidnappings in 2008, it's gone to 13,000 kidnappings in 2011. So the sort of what we are seeing, the lawlessness and unprecedented corruption. So what is the way out of it? In this gloom, there is, I see light at the end of the tunnel because of two reasons. Number one, we have a, a very powerful independent Supreme Court, which against all odds is standing up and standing up to the government. And the people of Pakistan are behind the Supreme Court, which came about because of what was called the lawyers' movement. People rallied behind uh, the Chief Justice when General Musharraf uh, uh, put him under house arrest. And it was people's power which got him first reinstated. Again, in the emergency, he was kicked out. Again, the people rallied behind him. And despite all opposition from uh, uh, the present setup headed by Asif Zardari, Again, he was in the long march. He had to be reinstated with people behind him. Now, we have an independent Supreme Court, which means that we could have, uh, uh, we could protect the election commission. So if the Supreme Court can ensure free and fair elections, and already it has taken the first step on our petition, petition of my party, we went to court. And so just to give you an idea, the sort of electoral fraud we had in 2008, uh, out of 80 million registered votes in 2008. 37 million votes were declared bogus. So 45% of the vote was fraudulent. And so these parties, the traditional parties, started off with a huge advantage. No wonder you couldn't beat them. And on top of it, 35 million votes were not registered. So of the young, 35 million votes were, were not registered. And the, both the main parties, the total vote was 18 million. And if in 18 million you take out 45%, which was bogus votes, they must, both parties must have had. So you can imagine so, uh, the, the, what this new electoral rules, the sort of revolution it's going to create. Three, 35 million youth voters coming in, all vote for change. Uh, and then we have 
the second institution in place, which is one of the most vibrant medias in Pakistan. It is, uh, it is independent. The television, is, the television talk shows, the current affair programs, uh, draw the greatest viewership. No soap opera can match them. Um, uh, it's like having about six Jeremy Paxman every evening. And the level of political awareness is unprecedented uh, in Pakistan right now. For the first time, you see the young people completely politicized in Pakistan. Uh, women politicized in villages, thanks to the, 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 the independent television. And um, when I used to previously address universities in Pakistan, 50% of the questions were cricket, another 20 about showbiz. <laughs> now, forget the universities. Uh, we, did, we collected money from schools for floods last year, and so we invited the, 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 the school children who had collected the most amount of money. And so we opened the floor for question answer. 95% questions from children from 10 to 15 were political. So the country got completely politicized. And this is where um, there's hope. Because whenever we have elections, uh, which will be sometime next year, in my opinion, Pakistan will head towards a genuine democracy. Uh, the biggest revolution is going to take place through the ballot box. And so you know, while there is darkness, there is uh, everywhere there's gloom and doom, I have, in my 15 years of politics, this is the first time I see hope in Pakistan where I see the elections bringing about a revolution, a soft revolution through the ballot box. So that's where the hope lies. Um, uh, but then I look forward to your questions because uh, you know, I don't know what aspects you want me to talk about the book. So uh, Professor Stern, I look forward to the uh, questions. Imran, uh, can you hear me through this microphone? All right at the back row there? Very good. So thank you very much for your very thoughtful comments. And there's so much to be thinking about and so many questions I'm sure will be coming. Um, I'm going to ask um, uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Atta Hussain, to ask the first questions, and then we'll open it up. But let me remind you again that uh, brevity is a virtue. In particular, it will allow others to ask questions as well. So, Atta, could you, could you lead us off? Yeah, I'll be brief and just say, could you further elaborate on the hope for Pakistan? You outlined two factors. Could you bit, go a bit more in detail of how to win over the public in Pakistan to the right side? Well, um, you know, already the public is being won over because if you look at all the opinion polls, uh, Tariq Saab, which is, of course, my party movement for justice, is by far leading uh, every poll shows that the lead between us and the number two party is increasing. Um, in, firstly, in 2008 elections, we were uh, number three. Uh, we were number two in the Pakhtunkhwa province, in the, uh, what was the Northwest Frontier province. Uh, but this year, uh, for, in the last six months, all opinion polls have shown that Tariq Ansaf has, uh, is, uh, has not only, according to Pew poll, YouGov poll, uh, polls within Pakistan, uh, New American Foundation did a poll in the tribal areas, uh, Tariq Ansaf had three times the vote bank to the number two party. So, so it's, uh, it's thanks to the media and thanks to a situation where Asif Zardari has basically co-opted all the political parties with him. So everyone has a share of the pie. They're all in government. And so as the things go down, all of them have got exposed. And because of that, people look for a change, and therefore that's how we are gaining ground. Thank you. Um, now it's your chance. We have about half an hour or so uh, for questions. I'll, I'll close the questions um, shortly before 8 o'clock so that there will be a good time for the book signing. Um, let me remind you, I will remind you again, but when the book signing uh, takes place, I know there's going to be a long queue. You join the queue once you've bought the book, and you buy the book 
outside in the atrium, probably some of you already have them anyway, in which case you'll get to the front of the queue. Um, but we will need a bit of discipline on this because I'm sure there'll be many people who want to ask uh, for a signing. Now, questions. Uh, there are roving mics here. Um, I'll try to move around uh, the hall. Um, let's start at the top. Uh, a gentleman at the back, um, yes, who's just waving there. Please keep it brief. Thank you. I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, my question is, what non-Pakistani leader, past or present, is your role model and why? Um, a role model, uh, uh, past was of course Jinnah, Qaid Azam, uh, and the reason was that Jinnah, you know, was um, a man who never ever compromised on, on, on his goals. And, so, and his goals were completely selfless. He was dying of TB, and yet he, um, you know, he never gave up the struggle. Uh, the present Mandela, in the sense that Mandela's 27 years in jail he spent, but never moved from his, uh, his goal, which was one man, one vote. He was offered everything. So again, a, a leader with a selfless vision. And the present one who I'm most impressed by is Erdogan of Turkey, because remember, Turkey had a similar problem uh, that, uh, to Pakistan where the army kept interfering in the system. And they too suffered from the democracy being interrupted. But Erdogan through giving performance, uh, uh, raising the, the, the per capita almost three times from three and a half thousand to almost ten thousand dollars per capita. And then um, when the army came in the way he went to the people, got a bigger mandate and then actually has the democratic uh, 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 institutions have prevailed over the army. And so it's put army in its place, which is what's going to have, have to happen in Pakistan. Because you can only uh, have a strong democracy if the army stays within its constitutional role. But only a government that has the moral authority, which Erdogan had, because army always holds a physical power. So only with moral authority he was able to... Uh, establish uh, the civilian uh, predominance over the, over the military. Uh, there's a lady just at the center downstairs here. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I wanted to ask, as I'm very um, proud of my Pakistani heritage, and like yourself, my parents are first-generation Pakistanis, but as a non-resident Pakistani, a British Pakistani, how, how can I make a difference in Pakistan but where I fear for my safety? I haven't been back for three years because I just can't um, take my son there who I'd like to identify with his roots as well. What are your sort of uh, recommendations on how we can make a, a real difference apart from, say, just donating our zakat to Shokat Khanim? Look, um, if you, you know, the reason someone like me came into politics, who did not need politics, because a lot of times people kept saying, why, you didn't need politics, why did you come into politics? In fact, those people who don't need politics, unless they come into politics, we are stuck with this, uh, this political mafia, which uses politics to do big business. So basically, if you want to know why, others, why this, the main two parties or three parties are doing politics, all you have to do is look at the assets of their leaders before they came into politics and what they become now. And you will know why they are in politics. So unless those people who don't need politics, and the, the strength of Tariq Insaf is that our top hierarchy, which no one knows, people don't know them, but they are all people who have excelled in other areas and who've come into politics because they feel that now is the time to fight for the country. Only way you can bring about a change is through politics. Uh, and if people who get scared from the mafia, who can do something, with the, and uh, in Pakistan you have very capable people, but they always, I feel, take the easy road and, and, and go, off, go outside Pakistan and get, go out for easy pickings. So if your best brains are not willing or the best qualified people are not willing to go into politics, we'll be, always be run by crooks. I mean, how can it happen that the biggest criminal becomes our president? It's a collective failure of all of us. And I have to, by the way, say my party was the only party that uh, 
that did a demonstration when Asa Zardari was going to become the president, saying that we are not part of this crime. To tell our younger generations that, you know, how can someone like him have become a president? But it's because, unfortunately, our educated classes are too soft. And they just find politics too rough and they take the easy route out. Gentlemen, right and so the answer is, join Tariq Ansaf. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, right up in the top corner there. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Abdul Qayyum. I want to ask you, what is the significance of you launching your book here in the UK and not in Pakistan? Well, it is going to be launched in Pakistan too, uh, but the only reason was that there was a UK publisher. Uh, and why, why, why launch it? Uh, and why, because I gave you two reasons for the book. One is, you know, for the Pakistani youth, but also for the way Pakistan is perceived uh, uh, outside Pakistan. I remember when I was still married, and my wife had to come after 9-11 to Pakistan, everyone used to give her a farewell that, that last time they would see her. <laughs> and, you know, they really believe there's such a lot of misconceptions about Pakistan, you know, and about Islam. And so I thought it's very important to, and by the way, I have spoken to uh, think tanks in Britain. Long I've said exactly the same thing I said about Taliban years back, that then unless they know what the Taliban is, know your enemy, they're not going to win the war. And I said this in um, America, all to the main think tanks. I met senators, Harry Reid, uh, Joe Biden, all of these people I've said this, but three, four years back. Uh, but I found, I, I thought that maybe it's important that the people in, 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 in Britain and maybe perhaps in America should know what is going on. No one knows what's going on. I mean, how can people sitting here understand that drone, what drone attacks are doing? How can, in a civilized society, allow this, that a drone attack in a village eliminates suspects, remember suspects, their wives, children, uh, anyone who, who happens to be there. I mean, you, how a drone attack takes place is that someone puts, an, a spy puts a chip on some house saying that there are militants there. And someone sitting in the United States, then on, like a computer game, decides to blow it up. Now the person could have gone, and a lot of times the, the fighters are on the move, they disappear. Anyone else could have come in. Uh, and so they are eliminated. And then clearly this policy is not working. Because whatever happens, the fallout of it is that more people go and join the militants. And so this is just uh, people in, in, in sitting in Britain and in the U.S. do not know what's going on. And they're wondering why this war is not finishing. Because actually... This war is creating militants and terrorists. Perhaps I could also add that there's no better place for open and uninhibited discussion than the London School of Economics. <laughs> That's why I came here. <laughs> the gentleman in the tie right at the back there. Please, downstairs. Yeah. Uh, whichever party wins uh, next year's elections, and hopefully it's three uh, consult. How do you propose the executive can exert control over the ISI so it's not pretending to do one thing and actually doing something else surreptitiously? And also, how do you propose the executive can control the army to prevent it from holding or attempting another coup? Well, first of all, uh, ISI and army is the same thing. You know, let's not try and separate them because ISI is, is, is the army's intelligence wing and the same person, which is the army chief, controls both. There's this idea that this is a rogue organization which is out of control. I don't think that's the case because what little I have my interaction with ISI is. Um, firstly, the moment a, a ruling elite of a country makes money out of war, that is where all the problems begin. We, we were some 20, 30 years back, our ruling elite made money by creating jihadis. Today, it is making money by killing the same jihadis. Uh, there is a big contradiction when, when your objective is to uh, fight terrorism, but then uh, you're also making money out of it. I mean, General Musharraf in his book talks about handing over 700 people for bounty to the Americans. 
that is breaking all laws of Pakistan. That is breaking. Uh, that's a human rights violation. That people, a person, is innocent till proven guilty. And whatever happened um, with the Osama case, whether as the CIA chief said it, you, Pakistan was complicit or incompetent. Either way, uh, what should never happen again is that we should never live of aid. A country that lives of aid, and especially in this case, basically getting money uh, to bomb our own people—that's what we essentially did. Because if you, if you know, if you follow the events from 2003-4 onwards, when the army went into Waziristan, it was uh, because the Americans pushed the Pakistan army to go there, and we had a leader who thought at the time that this is also a good way of making dollars. So our troubles are because a ruling elite minted dollars out of a war, and the people of Pakistan lost both times. In 80s, we lost out. Again, we have, the, as I said, 35,000 people dead. What did we have to do with the war? Yes, we should have helped the U.S. We should have given them intelligence. They had been attacked by terrorists. We should have given them all help. But why uh, commit suicide by sending our own army uh, in the tribal areas? So um, I, the answer to your question is uh, the whole contradiction starts when you use a war to make money. And that's what Pakistan did. The Pakistan's ruling elite did that. And then there had to be a double game. If their interest was the war should go on, which I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what they're doing, but if, if they're being suspected of a double game, it was an honorable government. It, it should have said, we are pulling out of the war. If you suspect our intentions, We'll pull out of the war. And I can tell you when Tariq and Saaf government, inshallah, comes to power after the next election, first thing we will do is no more aid. No aid. Uh, what aid does is it stops us making those reforms uh, which are needed to get the balance the budget, sort of raise revenues and cut down our expenditure. When you have aid, it's just like ca treating uh, cancer with discipline. So for a little while, you feel better, but the cancer is spreading. So now we have a, such a huge deficit that the country is locked onto it. If tomorrow the Americans decide to stop aid, we go belly up. So uh, first of all, no more, no more aid. Then raising, taxes, uh, raising tax revenue, not raising the taxes, but just taxing the rich. At the moment, the poor subsidize the rich in Pakistan. Rich don't pay any taxes. We all know how, our, how much our former prime minister, who's a billionaire, has these uh, whole building in Mayfair. You know how much tax he paid? Yes, 5,000 rupees, which is $60. <laughs> and of course, Asif Zadari didn't pay any tax at all. So when you're ruling elite, and when they don't pay taxes, they made laws so rich can evade taxes. And so, you know, poor people are taxed through this, which is what, what, what is causing massive inflation. So the main thing is, in Pakistan, no aid, Fight corruption through rule of law and a strong independent uh, anti-corruption bureau, a strong strengthen the judiciary, uh, and raise the tax revenues by taxing incomes above a certain level, whatever the income, whether from agriculture, wherever the income comes, don't raise the taxes but tax the rich. Uh, Pakistan has the lowest tax GDP ratio in the world, 9%. India has 18%. In my opinion, Pakistan could have 25% tax GDP ratio. Because here's someone who is given more money than anyone in Pakistan. The country that gives the highest per capita charity gives the lowest tax. It's simply because people do not trust the government. And neither the rich pay taxes, people don't trust the government because of corruption and the money is not spent on them. So if we can do fix this, uh, to fix Pakistan, you need to raise taxes, uh, tax revenue, you need to fight corruption, and we need to pull out of this war on terror and make it our war and guarantee to the Americans that once it becomes our war, there will be no terrorism from Pakistani soil, which is what surely the rest of the world wants from us. But only a credible sovereign government can do it. A government that is perceived to be a stooge of the Americans uh, can never uh, uh, fight terrorism because the terrorism or militancy is directed at that same government too. None of our senior government officers or a president or prime minister can come out in the public. Lady in the front row here, upstairs. Good evening and assalamu alaikum. My name is Maria. We are all hoping that Tehrik-e-Insaf comes to power. 
You have talked very rightly about the need to win over the alienated groups all over Pakistan, especially in the tribal areas. Does it not seem that the fundamental ideology of our people has been turned against all forms of establishment, be it the government or the army, to an almost irreversible degree? How do you propose to overcome the challenge of winning them over, and how do you change the perceptions that they have of us? Uh, well, you know, because I have uh, been to the tribal area, my party, according to all the surveys, is the number one most popular party in the tribal area, simply because I took an independent stand from day one that this, this was wrong. Military, I was opposed to the military oppression. Actually, after the East Pakistan debacle, where Pakistan army went into East Pakistan, I, I promised myself I would never, ever back military operations. Never. They have always been counterproductive, whether in Balochistan, whether in Karachi, whether in Sindh, in all the, in all the tribal areas at the moment, the, it, we have got nowhere with, the, with military operations. And neither have the Americans succeeded, by the way. And RAND Corporation survey that in the last 40 years of all the insurgencies, only 7% have been solved by military. So I have never believed in military operations. As a politician, I believed in, in a political solution. And I offered to mediate between the Taliban and the Pakistan government. And for that, I was called pro-Taliban. But now I'm, I'm pleased to see that Hillary Clinton and everyone wants to talk to the Taliban, but they're not talking to them. But there is no other solution. So therefore, uh, the way to win this war is to win the people of tribal area to your sides. And the way to do that is a truth and reconciliation. So you have announced a package of truth and reconciliation. Detach yourself. No government that is perceived to be a stooge of the Americans can ever have the credibility to talk to the militants. Only a government that is perceived to be independent can open dialogue, truth and reconciliation, compensate them for the devastation we have caused in the tribal areas, and then isolate the real terrorists. Remember, know your enemy. The real terrorists are Al-Qaeda who can hit Western targets, that no Pashtun has ever been involved in international terrorism. And certainly the Pashtuns there, I mean, they live in medieval times. There's no way they can, they'd be spotted even in Pakistan, forget about coming out into the Western countries. And the other, in, uh, uh, and the other threat, of course, are the jihadi groups like Lashkar-e-Taiba, all created during the Afghan jihad. So the, to win the war, you must isolate them. At the moment, we are strengthening them by causing collateral damage and pushing the people there. So open dialogue with them, win them over, isolate the terrorists. Um, a gentleman in the check shirt, and I'll go to the gentleman right next to you with the jacket. Imran, thank you very much for, the, for such a uh, good book on Pakistan. Two questions I have. One is in terms of, it's a book in English, and where you're seeing there's a lot of population in Pakistan, youth, who would really like to read this book and get enlightened. Is, are there any plans to have a Urdu version of the, of the book available on a cheaper price so that, you know, your message goes widely? <laughs> there, there is an Urdu version coming up, and uh, it'll be in two weeks, it'll be ready. And yes, that is the main um, version going all over Pakistan. Because, you know, to you know in this book also, I, I trace my, what I perceive Islam to be. And, you know, my own experience of uh, what, what Islam should do to our society. And then, of course, my great inspiration, the great Iqbal. So um, I think it's very important for our young people to have direction right now because you don't, they're so confused, you know, are you secular, are you liberal, are you, as if the problem is some fundamental, between fundamentalists and liberals. And that's why um, everyone is confused about the M Middle East, the Arab Spring, they don't know what it is. But basically, people in Pakistan want a change, want democracy, want rights, want uh, uh, taxation with representation. All the things which people in the West have. Uh, gentlemen, just to your right, then we'll go back upstairs. Thank you very much. Hi, Imran. Uh, my, my question, uh, a couple of questions. Uh, one. In, one question. Oh, one, one, que one question uh, with two parts. <laughs> uh, we, we are around uh, about 16 months away from general elections. Would you like to share with us today how many registered members your party has you know, made so far? And secondly, are you in a position now uh, to fight all Pakistani seats, provincial and, uh, provincial and national? Okay. Now, people in Pakistan, um, sort of, we are being attacked by saying, have you got enough candidates? 
Now look, there are two ways of fighting parliamentary, uh, elections in a parliamentary democracy. One is the traditional way in Pakistan, where you have candidate-based party. So parties must have candidates from various constituencies. For instance, in a district, there would be three or four political houses. So you, to win the elections, you would want a, a strong candidate from that political house. And so if you have enough of those candidates, uh, and then the party has a certain amount of vote bank, you think that you will be able to uh, win the election. And then, of course, a little bit of help with the establishment, and you're through. But the other model is Zulfikar Ali Bhutto's model in 1970, where I still remember what happened. He did not have the candidates. He just had a vote bank, and the young people supported him. So all my, my generation, we were all with Bhutto. All our parents, my father's generation, certainly were with the Muslim League. So in the end, they were only expecting, Bhutto was expecting 15 seats. But once the young and the, the passion of the youth is with you, and once an idea catches fire, then, it, then it's the, the candidates who run to you. So to already, although there are no elections right now, but because our vote bank has increased, we have candidates coming from all over Pakistan to want to uh, uh, stand for us. Problem is, most of them uh, are crooked. <laughs> and so the, it's not a question of getting candidates. It's a question of getting clean candidates. <laughs> this is our real challenge. Be because, because in order to win the next elections, we must give the people of Pakistan an alternative to the old politics. And the only way we can do it is by having either uh, uh, candidates from old constituencies who are clean, and that not many of them, or just having new uh, young people from preferably political houses, uh, but young people who, have, who are clean, who represent change in Pakistan. And my prediction is that this is going to be the biggest tsunami in Pakistan the next election. Because what, I've, what I'm seeing in Pakistan uh, I have never seen this. I remember 1970 when Zulfikar Ali Bhutto's uh, wave came. But this is unprecedented because the first time people in Pakistan fear about the survival of the country. It's never happened before. I mean, I go places and people say, you know, you've got to save the country. I never have seen such desperation in Pakistan before. And I'm talking about people in Karachi who would never think, Urdu speaking, would never think of another party. Today, they are so scared of what is happening in Karachi because all political parties, as is coming out in the Supreme Court, all political parties have their terrorist wings, militant groups. So except for us, every party now has armed groups there. And basically, they're fighting a turf war. You know, it's land grab or, or extortion. So because there's fear that the country might not survive, people are, are desperate for a change. And thanks to the media, uh, we have really, the party is growing, so just to, you talked about membership. We opened, uh, 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 four weeks ago, we, opened, we gave a number, an SMS number to, be mem uh, uh, to join us. So um, in just uh, uh, four weeks, we had 350,000 members without advertising. And of course, PMLN, as you know, follows us. Whatever we do, they try and follow us. <laughs> they announced a number two, and they've got 12,000 members. So it's a, you know, it's a big change taking place amongst the young. And it's a very exciting time. Dangerous, but exciting. Um, lady in the front row upstairs. Hi, Imran. Um, my question to you is that, you know, during this whole time about minority rights and about the Hudud ordinance, blasphemy laws, um, what has been your opinion, what is your opinion about all of this? Because I've heard a lot of other people talk about it, but you've been rather, and also because there's a misconception that you're pro-Taliban, so it's a bit shady and vague. Could you please elaborate on that? <laughs> Do you know, one of the reasons I decided to write this book is because I could not believe that, you know, whatever I might be, but how could I be pro-Taliban? <laughs> I mean, first, what is the Taliban ideology? How can anyone uh, with any, any education ever, ever adopt the Taliban ideology. I mean, even the religious parties are considered enlightened compared to the Taliban. <laughs> and so, uh, it, you know, that's why I, one of the reasons I was forced to write this book is to explain what is my religion. You know, what do I believe in? And that's why I found it important that 
we must go back to the founding father of Pakistan. The one person on whom there's consensus in the country is the great Iqbal. In my opinion, one of the greatest genius of all times, but certainly the greatest Muslim genius for 500 years, probably after Mulana Rumi. And so, um, you know, anyone who follows Iqbal, and where is, you know, where is Iqbal and where are the Taliban? So it's very important for the young people in Pakistan to understand what is Islam. And for that, they must understand or read Iqbal. So because he was my big inspiration, that's why I thought it was very important to put down what do I believe in? What Islam there should be in Pakistan? And what role should Islam play in, in, in Pakistan? Um, and as for minorities, remember, Tariq and Saab, Movement for Justice. Justice is to protect the weak from the strong. In Pakistan, it's not, there's not so much a problem of laws. The, the problem in Pakistan is that laws are distorted by the strong to crush the weak. When I spent my little stint in jail for eight days, I never saw any, any big criminal in that jail. I only saw poor people. And in the assembly I sat for five years, there was no shortage of mega crooks. <laughs> so a, a society, how can you have any laws implemented when uh, the, the big criminals get NRO and become the president and the only poor people end up in jail. So you need rule of law in Pakistan bringing the big criminals under the rule of law. Gentlemen in the, shirt, in the center, three rows back. Sir, my question is slightly different. Uh, the terrorism that you talk about has spread to this country. So are you prepared to go on media and say to these confused people that know your enemy, we are not your enemy, this is the most tolerant country in the world, and either you accept this as home or you go and fight elsewhere? Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the worry is, I have to say that my worry is that the next attack in, uh, in, in a, on Western countries is not going to come from the mountains of Pakistan or Afghanistan. The danger is that there will be radicalized Muslims on the fringes. Most people feel that you know, there's political injustice. For instance, I've always felt that this war was very unjust in Afghanistan because uh, the Taliban were fundamentalists. They were not terrorists. And only three weeks after an event, you don't make war a first option. It's a last resort. So to go in, rather than separate Taliban from Al-Qaeda, who were the real terrorists, they actually uh, uh, devastated the whole country. And, so, and what have they achieved? So I always objected to this war in Afghanistan and in Iraq, because uh, you know, Iraq war was on, on wrong pretenses you know, about weapons and mass destruction, whatever. So I think that what that has done is it has done more to radicalize uh, Muslims in Western countries. And so you have cases of Faisal Shahzad in, in, uh, in New York, in Times Square, who openly says that I'm doing it because of drone attacks killing women and children in the Pakistan tribal areas. So uh, firstly, this is not, again, it's not a, religion, a religious issue. It is a political issue. Um, the, the solutions also lie in politics. So in my opinion, the sooner uh, uh, Americans leave Afghanistan with some sort of a broad-based government, the, the more the temperatures will come down in, in the Western societies amongst the marginalized youth. I don't mean you know, um, Muslims everywhere, but there's always on the fringes of society, you will always have radicals. And my, I always worry, and especially now after May 2nd, Osama being found in Pakistan, I worry for Pakistan. If something happens, I as a Pakistani worry that immediately we will be, uh, somehow we will be blamed. So there's a lot of fear in our country. And hence it's very important to deal with this war on terror and, and rationalize it, uh, you know, and, 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 and deal with it politically. Moderate Islam is not the answer. Dealing with political issues is the answer. Uh, the, the solutions are in politics, not in Islam. A gentleman in the blue shirt near the front there. Imran, uh, if you get into power, um, how do you propose to deal with the United States? Um, first of all, no aid. No, no loans from IMF, World Bank, massive austerity in the country and raise your revenues and stand on your own feet. So try and be friends with them rather than their slaves. You know, and friends, you can, you know, a, a friend perhaps will, will tell the U.S. that, look, 
Don't interfere in our country. But we will guarantee you what is your biggest worry, that there should not be any terrorism from Pakistani soil. That's all they should worry about. We don't want any interference. Because all it does is the kiss of death is whenever a Pakistani politician adopts U.S. policies. So poor Benazir never stood a chance. The moment she came in with backing Bush's agenda and landed in Pakistan, she was a dead woman. Because it meant that people who were petrified of her getting into power had an easy alibi. They could bump her off and blame it on the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, which is what they did. But clearly, every evidence is that there was a massive cover-up. So um, when the U.S. patronizes a puppet, neither can the puppet deliver for the U.S., and he certainly cannot deliver for his own country. So uh, I think that the U.S. should change its policy towards the Muslim world and stop patronizing these puppets. It's failing in the Middle East. It's a matter of time before uh, there's a revolt against all the puppets. Because of social media, information revolution, no longer can you get away with the sort of things that, the, uh, that happened in the Cold War and so on, or the dictators could control information. You can't control it anymore. And so it's much better to be, have a sale relationship like the U.S. has with India, where it's a relationship with the population, with a democracy, not with one person. And that's what the U.S. should uh, think of having a relationship with Pakistan. But certainly, I as a Pakistani, we don't want to uh, you know, be anti-U.S. or fight a war against the U.S., but we certainly don't want to be their lackeys. Um, lady at the far back, uh, on the far back corner there. Hi, Imran. My name is Priya, and uh, I would like to ask, what is your view of the future of uh, Indo-Pakistan relations? And secondly, how do you read the Arab Spring? Thanks. Well, um, you know, about Indo-Pak relationship, you know, as I've always maintained, you can't change your neighbors. So you, <laughs> so you, you have to live. You, you have to live with them in a civilized manner. And unfortunately, we haven't had a very civilized relationship with them. Even when, when there have been talks, uh, there's been, uh, uh, you know, uh, backstabbing, agencies playing their role, raw this side, ISI the other side. We have to have a new relationship with India. And I think it should be now a, a relationship where we decide that all our problems will be decided politically. So politically, as long as this comes in the forefront, that every issue will be decided on the dialogue table, and end to these role of the agencies. It's a disaster for both countries. Uh, you know, Pakistan is blaming India and Balochistan. India is blaming Pakistan and Kashmir. And, and so this will go on, unless there's a new relationship now. And I think uh, if we look ahead, the future of the subcontinent is very bright. India is emerging as an economic giant. There's China on one side. If Pakistan, if, if it gets its house in order and we start trading in this whole area, uh, this would be, you know, it would benefit everyone. Uh, and also it would stop this huge amounts of money being poured into arms both sides of the border. So I, I'm one for who believes in, in um, uh, changing the way we've been uh, uh, dealing with each other. Uh, any issue on Kashmir should be uh, dealt with on the table. It should be a political settlement of Kashmir, no longer encouraging militancy or using militants to uh, achieve your objectives. It's not going to work. And it's already caused enough uh, damage between the two countries. And, and the Arab Spring? And the Arab Spring is basically uh, uh, people wanting the same rights, the young people in the Arab world, thanks to the social media, wanting democracy like they have seen now in the Western world. And, and again, it's because of the information, people have woken up. And also this rule of uh, puppets, you know, where, where, you, where, 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 the, where, where the head of state is basically towing a policy which goes against the public sentiment. So I think this is a rebellion, A, against these puppets, and secondly, a demand for democracy. This is what's happening in the Arab world. I think it's irreversible. I think there will be counter-revolutions, but eventually, it is this thing cannot be stopped anymore because of, of, of the social media. A gentleman in the short sleeve shirt in the front here. 
front corner. Imran, you haven't been asked a cricket question yet. Um, as a fast bowler, you bowl in short spells, right? Eight, ten, twelve hours, and you take a rest. What's your secret for energy in politics? Um, secret for politics is simple. Well, okay, let me just answer uh, you know, what I've tried to answer in the book. Uh, the best, the one lesson sport teaches you is that you only lose when you give up. And if you do not give up, you can win from impossible situations. And the champions are those uh, who have the ability to learn, uh, to, to take defeats, to learn from their failures, to identify and analyze their mistakes properly and accurately. A champion is who's, when he's down, he learns from his defeat and then picks him, himself up and again starts struggling. So, so as long as you don't give up, no one can defeat you. And so this is in politics 15 years. Had I not been on the cricket field for 21 years and not learned this lesson, I possible that I would have given up. But knowing, having gone through that, there was never any question because I, I knew that I was much better equipped uh, for, the, uh, for the longer term than my opponents because they had no idea. They, had all, they all played with, uh, with, with their home umpires. I learned to play with neutral umpires. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there's uh, a lady just in the, about two rows back, very close to you there. No, no this, this side. This side. Yeah. Um, on the assumption that you will win the next election, inshallah, um, how do you plan on implementing the rule of law? And what can people from the legal profession outside of Pakistan do to help with this change? So the moment a government brings itself under the rule of law, there is rule of law. I have, I'm probably the only politician who's built an institution and run it. And I'm very proud to say that uh, the cancer hospital which I built and now the university, um, nowhere in Pakistan you can, I, I challenge everyone to go and see any corruption in the hospital. Uh, and I believe that principles are the same everywhere. If a captain is clean, there can be no match fixing. If, if the leadership obeys and brings itself under the, uh, under the laws of the institution, everyone else will obey them. Um, and if you, to fight corruption, if your top tier is clean, corruption will always be in manageable proportions. Uh, I remember speaking to Mahathir Muhammad and he told me that as long as your top leadership is clean, corruption won't harm you. But the problem happens is if the top tier is crooked, then corruption becomes plunder what is happening in Pakistan. So in the cancer hospital, I'll just give you an example. We, so the difference, top, if your top leadership is clean, the difference it makes. Uh, we buy a PET scan machine, which is the ultimate in, right now in cancer diagnosis. We buy that machine for $4 million. Exactly the same machine was bought by a government hospital for $6 million. So top-level corruption meant that $2 million in one deal were just skimmed off. Whereas uh, if, if low down the staff does indulge in corruption, it, it can never match in a year. They can never make two, $2 million. So the key is that if you have, if in Pakistan the cabinet is clean, and I believe we have the only party where we can guarantee that the top-tier leadership has integrity. Because otherwise, they would not have spent 15 years in opposition. Remember, opposition in Pakistan is not like opposition in Britain. You know, here's it's a piece of cake. In Pakistan, opposition is, you know, you face a lot of problems. If you have any property, if you have any, if you have businesses, you are in trouble, you know, and, and you can actually you know, your life is under threat. So therefore, people who have stayed um, put in a party for 15 years in an opposition means that they believe in the ideology, and number two, they have integrity. And so if the top tier is clean, and you implement rule of law, apply the law on yourself, start accountability with yourself, start paying taxes yourself, uh, you can actually uh, very quickly make that country turn around. Imran, thank you. I I'm, must apologize to all those uh, who haven't been able to ask their questions. You've been um, 
very disciplined with the questions you've answered, and it's just a, a tribute to, to you, Imran, that so many people wanted to participate and we're having to frustrate so many of them. But I don't want to frustrate also the people who would like to have the book signed. So could I ask you, just to, or just remind you, you buy the book, you join the queue, you buy the book outside, or you've already uh, bought it. Uh, could I ask those who are not going to join the queue to, um, to leave, but the most important uh, way in which we have to conclude this meeting is to thank you, Imran, for an extraordinarily... You, you've been so thoughtful and courteous and generous with your time, and we are enormously grateful for the honor of your coming to the LSE to talk to us. Thank you very much.